and pull out your uh, outline. As Peter was sharing earlier, uh, there's so much about, uh, I love the history, not particularly Christmas carols, the theology that you find in in certain ones. Uh, I'll challenge you, for example, uh, just go read many of them, but particularly Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I won't sing it for you because you're going to be dining later. But you read... uh, you read Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there's a lot of really, really deep theology in that Christmas carol. Just the expression of what scripture was, was trying to get us to understand and the moment in history and how significant it was that the baby came, that the baby was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, and the announcement of the angels, and, and on and on. And there's so much about Christmas that's become secularized, but in many cases it's become secularized and they don't even realize that what they're singing in a secular way is very deep theology many times. And so it's a, it's a special moment for us as believers to be able to communicate and live out and share who our God really is, who our Savior is, and what we celebrate, not just at Christmas in December, but on a daily basis and in a lifetime as a believer, when you're born again, that you understand the significance of Christ, who he was, that the baby in the manger was Emmanuel, God with us. And it's fascinating as you go back in in history and you look at a lot of different things and you see the hand of God and the sovereignty of God. For example, how many of you like the the, uh, movie A Christmas Carol? Okay, then you're not born again, but that's all right. The, my favorite version is the one nobody likes but me, but it's the one with Albert Finney in uh, 1969 or 70. It was made, and it's called, it's a musical, Scrooge the Musical, and I, I watch it, a, there's certain parts of it I watch, particularly just where they sing thank you very much. I'll watch that over and over and over again. I just, I'm, I love it. But Charles Dickens, and I love Charles Dickens growing up, even before I was a Christian, I read um, uh Everything Dickens wrote, I read. I just found it very, absolutely fascinating. Not everybody agrees, but a great expectation to me, one of the greatest books ever written. But anyway, he wrote A Christmas Carol in 1843. And the reason that he wrote it, from 1790 to 1835, the London Times did not mention Christmas one time. Not one time. From 1790 to 1835, it was never mentioned. And pretty much in that Victorian area, they had, it was just, uh, unemployment was, was rampant, very depressed. If you, and if you watch that, uh, Scrooge, and you see that, and he wrote a Christmas carol to ignite in England, in the government and in business, a mindset that don't be like Ebenezer Scrooge. Be like he is at the end not at the beginning. And that's the reason, the genesis of A Christmas Carol, and obviously it worked. And again, here we are two centuries later, and we still celebrate that book written by Charles Dickens. Not so much written as a theological treatise, but just to say to society, we've lost something here that's very special. So if you'll look at your handout, and as we think not only of Christmas, but we think of who the, the Savior was, and we think about as we've been studying the book of Mark, that Jesus not, didn't just come to be 
our Savior, which is the reason he came. But he came to show us the servant Savior, that he came to live a life of service and then to give his life as a sacrifice for us that we might be redeemed. And what it means to be a Christian is to live out that life of service. So we've been looking at, particularly in this, this handout that you've got, the lordship of Jesus Christ, the servant savior. Number one, we've seen his lordship over sin. Number two, we've, number two, we've seen his lordship over self-righteousness. So now as we transition today into number three, we're going to see his lordship over the Sabbath. Why is that so important? Well, if you remember, as he dialogues and he interacts with these people, they're, they're Jewish. And the Sabbath to them had become an absolute burden. In any way you, you could think of the word burden, just like an elephant sitting on you, just weighing you down. And the very last thing they had on Sabbath was rest. And yet that's what the word means. That it means to rest. That they had, that the Pharisees had just burdened them with law after law after law. And they had lost the concept of rest. Give you a quick example. Right now in the United States of America, I'm going to read to you laws, stupid laws, that are on the books in our nation as we speak. In Florida, a woman may be fined for falling asleep under a hairdryer. I think that's probably a good thing, but I'll leave that alone. In Indiana, citizens are not allowed to attend a movie within four hours after eating garlic. In Iowa, a man with a mustache is forbidden from kissing a woman in public. There's a town in Illinois where ice skating at the the Riverside Pond during the months of June and August is strictly prohibited. In Norma, Illinois, it's against the law to make a face at a dog. In Wisconsin, it's against the law to serve apple pie in restaurants unless there's cheese on top of it. In Nicholas County, West Virginia, no member of the clergy is allowed to tell a joke or a humorous story from the pulpit. Uh-oh, I bet I won't be getting called there anytime soon. All right. Turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and I want us to focus on Jesus' lordship over the Sabbath. And specifically, here's what he's trying to teach them in this section. It's about freedom. I came to set you free. You've heard me quote a million times. Now it's just part of who we are. Jesus came because he's the truth, and what does truth do? It sets you free, free from the burden, the penalty of sin. He took that at the cross so that we're set free. We're born again. We're given new life in Christ. Freedom from worrying about beyond the grave because I'm, because I'm in Christ. I know that I am God's and I will be with him forever in paradise, in heaven. But also what Jesus wanted them to understand, particularly at this moment in time, in this dialogue that we're looking at, the context was I want you to understand you're free from all this burden and this legalism that the Pharisees are dumping on you. So in this section, we talked about it last week, Jesus is deliberately violating the way the Pharisees had brought the Sabbath to be. So he wanted the people to understand it's not what they tell you it is. I'm Lord over the Sabbath. I'm God of the Sabbath, and I came to set you free from all these regulations so you can genuinely have rest. The Sabbath was, was given by God in the ex- as they left the exodus from Egypt. 
And it was a special special sign that God gave to the children of Israel. It was never given to any other nation in history. You won't see it in scripture. You won't see it anywhere else. It was a special sign that God gave to the Israelites after he took them out of bondage in Egypt that they were his children and they would rest on that day and remember what he had done for them in setting them free and just relax, rest, and remember who their God was. It was a day, to, a day of joy, a day of peace, a day to just relax. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments. If you go read in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, it's the only one of the ten that's a purely ceremonial commandment. The other nine are all moral and spiritual absolutes. You never see the commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, repeated in the New Testament. The other nine are repeated several times. It was a ceremony given for the children of Israel after he set them free to say to the pagans around them, we take this day to set it aside so that you will see who our God is. It was a day to stop and focus on eternal verities, corporately in worship and then individually in contemplation. I call that a nap. That was a joke. All right. Work was prohibited on the Sabbath in general, but no specific details were given. Now, by the time we get to Mark chapter 2, during Jesus' public ministry, the Pharisees had turned that Sabbath into an unbelievable, incredible burden on the people. In Matthew 23, Jesus said this. He spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. They bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. They themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So here's what Jesus was saying. They have the position. They sit in Moses' seat. They have the position of authority. They say something, but then their actions don't live up to it. I don't want you to be like the Pharisees. If you read Matthew 23, he's very clear about that. I don't want you to pray like them, give like them. I want you to be different. I want you to fast like them. Let me just read you. Let me just read you. By the time Jesus comes along, the Jewish leaders had established 39 Sabbath clarifications, each having multiple subdivisions, making over 1,500 prohibitions. Here's just a few. It was unlawful to kill a flea that lands on your arm because that would make you guilty of hunting on the Sabbath. If your ox fell into the ditch, you could pull it out, but if you fell in, you had to stay there. These were actual laws the Pharisees had added to the Sabbath. You could dip your radish in salt, but if you left it there for too long, you were picking it and thus working that they actually had discussions on how long it took to pickle a radish. You could only eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath if you killed the chicken for working on the Sabbath. It was okay to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you couldn't spit on the ground because that made mud, and mud was mortar, and that was working. Mm-mm-mm. They had 24 chapters of Sabbath laws. One rabbi spent two and a half years studying just one chapter to figure out the minutiae of what could be picked up and carried on the Sabbath. Women were not allowed to look in the mirror. They could not bathe. Six different times in the Gospels, the Pharisees attacked Jesus about doing things on the Sabbath. Five of those involve healing. Now let's look at what happens here. Look at verse 23. 
In that context, notice what Jesus does. 2.23 of Mark. It happened that he, Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and those with him? So, in this fourth incident, what Jesus is trying to teach them, they come to accuse him. Your disciples are working on the Sabbath. They're not, they're doing what is not lawful. They're plucking and rubbing the grain. Now, how did they know that they were doing that? The Pharisees. Apparently they had gone out there, which would have been working on the Sabbath. They shouldn't have been there themselves. Now, Jesus in verses 25 and 26, and I want you to flip back for just a moment to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, in a parallel account, you'll get a little more detail. So what Jesus is going to do, he's going to answer their accusation about your disciples are working on the Sabbath by plucking this grain. So Jesus is going to give them three examples from their own scriptures. Remember, they were experts in the scripture, the Old Testament, the law, the prophets. So Jesus is going to say to them, have you never read and then give them three examples from their scriptures. And when Jesus says to them, have you never read, that's like a rabbinical rebuke. That'd be like your teacher in college saying, did you not read the assignment I gave you? So he's saying to them, you're, you're experts in the scriptures, and you don't even know what's going on here. So he's going to give them some examples. Matthew 12, verses 3 and 4. First example is David. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. So David, those with him were hungry. They went into the temple and ate the showbread in the temple. And the point was they had a need. They were hungry. And that was more important to God than the ceremony of the bread in the temple, which was the showbread, which was only be eaten by the priests at the end of the week. He said, that's example number one, David. Understand, it wasn't about what's legal. It wasn't about what the Mosaic law. Even in the Mosaic law, it was okay to go through the grain and, and pick if you had a need and you were hungry like Jesus' disciples. You could eat. You just couldn't take your John Deere and go through there and harvest on the Sabbath. But you could pick and eat because hunger superseded their law. So if you were hungry, it was okay. And matter of fact, they were told to keep areas of your fields open for the poor to come through and have something to eat. Be generous, be merciful, be kind. What the Pharisees had become was brutal, heavy, weighing the people down with trying to keep up. And by the way, the example Jesus used here in Matthew, the first example, is David. Who was David to a Jew? He was king, King David. Even to this day, and if you read the scriptures, what's the name of the throne that Jesus will sit on in the eternal state? It's the throne of whom? David. Very, very important. Jesus said, so, do you remember the example of David? Have you not read? Second example, verse 5 of Matthew 12. The priests. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and they are blameless. Yet I say to you, that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Even on the Sabbath, the priests would do certain things, and they were 
blameless. They were, in your minds, working, but they're blameless. And then I, re- I really want you to know, we'll talk more about this later, but notice Jesus is saying to them, in your midst stands here one greater than the temple. Who's he talking about? Himself. So they'll, they'll, they'll understand it before it's all over with. But Jesus is trying to get their attention. Your focus is all wrong. David did this on the Sabbath. The priests did it on the Sabbath. Then he gives them another example. So don't miss this. You've got King David. You've got the priest. And then the third example is a prophet, Hosea. Look at Matthew 12, 7 and 8. But if, he, if, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus now quotes their prophet, Hosea. And here's what he says. God desires mercy and sacrifice. God desires love above all. Above your legalism and your rules and your traditions, God wants you to be merciful. God wants you to be loving. God wants you to understand who's in your midst. Now, one last time, please note, look up at the screen or in your handout. Notice the three examples that Jesus gives. King David, the priest, and the prophet. The three offices that the Messiah would serve in, according to the Old Testament, were prophet, priest, and king. Not lost on these Jews. Not lost on these Pharisees. Jesus is saying to them, I am greater than the prophets. I am the prophet. I am the high priest. The entire book of Hebrews is written about one point. Jesus is our great high priest. The entire book of Hebrews. That's the subject. Consider Christ our high priest. He is superior to Moses, Joshua, angels, and he goes on and on. The whole Levitical priesthood. So this was a big deal. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah that David pictured. I am the great high priest. I am the great prophet. I am prophet, priest, king. And that's why he says to them, There's one here in your midst that's greater than the temple. All you're worried about are people picking stuff out of the the grain in the field. David went into the temple and ate his followers. I am greater than the temple. I am Messiah. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Go back to Mark and look at verse 27. He said to them, Mark 2, 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. This is a summary statement. You need to understand. The Sabbath was given, number one, verse 27, to serve man, not to burden him. It was given to him as a day of rest, given to him as an opportunity to honor God, given to him as a, as a, possi- a possibility, as a testimony to the pagans around him. It was not to burden him. It was to serve. It was to benefit him. It's supposed to be a blessing. It's supposed to be a benefit. It's supposed to be a time of rest, not a burden. And the Pharisees had made it an incredible burden. One of the, one of the ways it's talked about in the Bible is that God created man on the sixth day. And on the, which day did he rest? The seventh. Man was created first. And the epitome 
of all of God's creation, go back and read Genesis. What's the only thing God made in his image? Man, and then God rested. He was done. Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Even today, when you're sharing your faith with someone, you're living out as a Christian, one of the, one of the most exciting things to share with someone, because most people just don't understand God that way, and they don't understand Jesus that way, is that God looks at us as human beings. We're the only thing in the universe that has the capacity to love God. We're the only thing in the universe that has the capacity to think about God. We're the only thing in the universe that has the capacity to come into intimate relationship with God. God became man. He did not become an animal. God became a baby in the manger who then went to the cross to die in our place. Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnation. He didn't condescend to become an angel. He became a man to die for men so that we could be redeemed. And by the way, as the bride of Christ, talked about this a couple of weeks ago, as the redeemed, his children, his bride, his sheep, we will reign with him one day over all. We are his bride. We will reign with him. So he's saying to the Pharisees, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. It was created for man. You are to serve the master. Look at verse 28. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. He's also Lord over the temple. He's also Lord over every other things we talked about, the new way and all of that. The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. The context, I'm also Lord over sin. I'm God over righteousness. I'm the Son of Man. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Son of Man, I am the Messiah. I am the Anointed One in Hebrew. I, Jesus, own and define the purpose of the Sabbath. I am the great I am. Greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath. That's why Jesus said the following words. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. The word Sabbath in the Bible always means rest. Jesus said, come to me, I'll give you rest. Now, chapter 3, Jesus said, so understand this. It's about liberty, not legalism. Well, let's look at this. 3.1. So he entered the synagogue again, and a man there had a withered hand. They watched him closely, that's the Pharisees, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to him, is it lawful? On the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? To the Pharisees, Jesus asked that. Notice their response, verse 4. They kept silent. You know why they kept silent? They didn't have an answer. When he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. So what you're seeing here, continuing Jesus trying to teach them about freedom. So now he goes into the synagogue. They've got a trap set for him in verses 1 and 2. They know that my guy with the withered hand is there. So if Jesus heals him, they got him because he's healing on the Sabbath. 
So Jesus says, is it lawful? Unless it's life or death, according to them, healing on the Sabbath was illegal. And by healing, they meant giving medical help. You couldn't give someone medical help unless it was a life or death situation. So they know Jesus can heal. That's what's fascinating about this. They're not denying that he can do it, are they? They know who he is, and they know they've seen what he's done. And they know that he will, this is so important that we don't miss this. They knew Jesus could heal anybody that he chose. We saw this before, God's will. He could heal anybody that he chooses to heal. Well, here's what the other thing that they know. When he saw the guy with the withered hand, they knew Jesus would care about him. They didn't care about the man. They were simply using him to trap Jesus. But they knew Jesus would love him and care for him. And they were hoping he might choose to heal him so they could get trapping again. And this is the climax, if you read through the Gospels, where their hostility just explodes. They're going after Jesus to get rid of him. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way. It is at this point in history that Israel's clock stopped. Because it was no longer anything to do with God. It was, we have to get rid of this man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus challenged him in verses 3 and 4. Number one, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Or to save life or to kill? The Jewish maxim was, if you had a chance to do good and didn't do it, you were guilty of evil. So here was Jesus' point. Evil is at work every day, including the Sabbath. So shouldn't good be at work on the Sabbath as well? Their answer, verse 4, Again, please note, their answer to God's question was they were suddenly mute. They didn't have anything to say. They didn't have an answer. So I want you to notice Jesus' response to their silence in verse 5. Because of the hardness of their heart, two things you notice about Jesus. Verse 5, number one, he's angry. That word in Greek means that his countenance was incredibly stern, and he was indignant at the hardness of these men's hearts. By the way, who were these men? They weren't just clowns that had come in off the street. Who were they? They were the religious leaders of the Jews, and they didn't care at all about this man, or anybody else for that matter. They were simply something they were using, and it made Jesus angry. But the other thing it did, it grieved him. Grieved him. That word means excessively sorrowful. That men who were supposed to be spiritual leaders could be this cold. It hurt Jesus. And it angered him. Truth wasn't getting through. All that mattered to them was their rules, the zeal for their way of doing things. We do it our way. So Jesus heals the man with a withered hand. Sets him free. Now notice verse 6. Notice verse 6. Their response. They began to plot with the Herodians to what? Destroy Jesus. Immediately. There's Mark's favorite word again. And by the way, Herodians were Jews that were loyal to King Herod. And they were hated by the Pharisees. But at this point, the Pharisees said what? We need help. So they may be our enemies. But Jesus is the enemy of our enemy, so he's our friend. So they plotted with their enemies to destroy Jesus. Herodians were simply politicians. They didn't care anything about religion. 
the Pharisee said, we'll use them. Now, what do we learn from this? We tend to think, give you some principles, and then we're going to close this out. Number one, we tend to think, and if we're not careful, that other people are legalistic, but it's never us. It's always somebody else. You've got to be really careful. Because Jesus sets us free when we're born again. We want to judge people by our standards. We think our sins are no big deal, but yours, woo, yours are really bad. Number two, legalism can be really contagious. Because it's always easy to set yourself up and find someone else that you're better than, and then you get everybody, and we all agree, woo, we're not, at least we're not like him. And it kind of becomes contagious. That's why it's so important that we understand one of the things that is a sign of truly being born again is that you realize how sinful you are. You realize that without Jesus, you are hopeless. You can never be good enough. And all you want to do is humble yourself before him and then share him with other people. Legalism can take your faith. It's vibrant and alive and just make it dull, lifeless, going through the motions because it makes you self-righteous, judgmental, makes you narrow, narrow, divisive. And the, probably the, mo- the worst thing is that you lose the sight of Jesus because you're so focused on doing your religion. You miss Jesus. Pastor Tim Keller defines it this way. When personal preference becomes spiritual commandment, the seeds of pride produce legalism and tradition. We have to trump our traditions with the word of God and make sure we don't lose our elasticity by holding on to our brittle categories. One of the things I love about talking, being set, the idea of being set free, Jesus gives us forgiveness, fulfillment, and freedom. And when he sets you free, it's not just so you get to go to heaven when you die. It's that you could be a genuine, living out the faith believer right now. Set free. Given hope. I pray for you that you wake up every day excited about the peace child. Excited that he came. I'll read you a quote talking about peace on earth, thinking about Christmas as we wrap up today. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. When she gave birth to her firstborn son, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Last week, we talked about the fact God in his sovereignty got Mary and Joseph and used the Roman Empire to get them to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy because that's where the Messiah was going to be born. Here's what I want you to see today. And I pray it humbles you because it it humbles me every time I think about it. God in his sovereignty got Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. But please note, when they got to Bethlehem, where did they end up? Peter mentioned it earlier. They ended up out back, 
in a feed trough. So what I want you to see is last week we saw the sovereignty of God. Today I want you to see the will of God. That he came as a humble child born to a poor couple, lived a poor life as a carpenter. And the Bible tells us in Philippians that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself. He could have been born into a wealthy family. He could have come down off the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, took, he could have called down myriads of angels if he wanted to. He chose to come as a baby in a manger. He chose to go to Calvary. So here's the picture I want you to see. You're set free because of the humility of God in the flesh. He chose to come that way. He chose to go to that cross for us so that we could be born again. That's why Christmas is so exciting is because he came. Because if he didn't come, we don't have hope. But he came. He could have done it a different way, but he chose not to. He chose to come. He chose to go to a place where they wouldn't accept him. Had to be born in a feed trough. He chose to do that for us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, quote, For your sake, he became poor. For your sake and mine. It's not what God could do. He's omnipotent. He can do anything he wants. It's what he chose to do that makes Christmas so exciting. What he chose to do was humble himself and die for Randy Lockley. Man, that should motivate you. That's what sets you free. And the Pharisees and their religion and their legalism just beat people down. Jesus came and said, stop. I came to give you rest. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Forget that. Rest in me. Bring your burdens to me. I'll give you rest. Bow your heads, please. So, Father, as we wrap up today and we think about that baby in the manger and we think about Calvary, there was no detour. He came to go to Calvary. That's it. He started out in a manger humbly, died on a cross humbly. But he rose again victoriously, ascended to the Father, ever lives to make intercession for us because he's God. Just like he told the Pharisees, one stands in your midst today that's greater than the temple. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the Sabbath. I'm greater than your rules. I came to give you peace, hope, and to set you free. So I pray that for those of us who are Christians today, Lord, we'd live in the light of being set free. The humility of Jesus Christ would be us, reflected in us to others, out to others. That Christ in me is what sets me free, nothing else. Christ in me is my hope of glory. Thank you, Father, for the baby in the manger who became the Christ on the cross. I pray, Father, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Christ, Jesus as their Savior, that today they would say, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for going to the cross for me. My Christmas present is understanding Jesus. Lord, forgive me, save me. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing, and Russ will be down here.
Rhett's over here and I'll be over here if you'd like somebody to pray with you.